Welcome to Private Market Talks, a Proskauer podcast. I'm your host, Peter Antoshik. ESG investing is now the fastest growing segment of the asset management industry. How do you define it? How do you measure it? And how do you incorporate ESG into investing in a quantifiable and transparent manner? And what is the future of ESG? Here to help us answer some of these questions is Alex Friedman, co-founder and CEO of Nevada. Nevada is a mission-driven and technology-powered public benefit company designed to improve the process of environmental, social, and governance diligence in private markets. Backed by a unique consortium of companies, they have developed a means for private markets to collect, analyze, and report on ESG metrics. Prior to joining Nevada, Alex was the CFO of the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, where he created its Social Impact Fund, Global Chief Investment Officer of UBS, and CEO of GAM Holding, a publicly listed alternatives asset manager. Alex co-founded Jackson Hole Economics and is a board member of Franklin Templeton. You'll find a full transcript of this episode at privatemarkettalks.com, as well as links to other useful information. And please don't forget to subscribe and hit like after listening. And now my conversation with Alex Friedman. Alex, welcome to Private Market Talks. Appreciate you being here. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. So we're going to dive right into it. And today we're going to be talking about uh, ESG, environmental, social, and governance. ESG is an umbrella term that covers a broad range of ideas. To level set our listeners, what is ESG? How would you define it, Alex? Basically, ESG is an acronym. And it's, as you point out, an acronym that stands for environmental, social, and governance factors, but that lumps together an awful lot. So one way to think about ESG is it refers to all the material metrics that are non-financial that a company might care about or its stakeholders might care about. And can you give some examples of what that might include? Sure. Some common examples of, say, metrics that are lumped under the acronym of ESG might include carbon emissions, clean water usage, what percentage of your energy is from renewables, what's the pay gap, what's the diversity statistics of a company, How about your worker safety record? How about your data breach record? Those kinds of questions. Got it. And, you know, it's interesting about 30 years ago, I would say I was, uh, I I moderated a panel of corporate CEOs, both public and private. And what we talked about in that context was corporate responsibility. But at some Mm -hmm. point, ESG emerged as, as the vernacular. And I'm kind of curious from your perspective, you know, when did ESG emerge and why? It's a great point, Peter. You point out that these issues have been around for a long time, and arguably they've been around as long as companies have been around. Because if you think about, you know, investors 100 years ago, they would have cared about a lot of the same issues that today get lumped under the acronym ESG. They would have cared to know, do you have happy employees? Is there a lot of turnover? net attrition, which is an ESG factor, they'd want to know, do you have some big environmental liability? Because it's going to cost money to fix it. They'd want to know worker safety. Those are issues which have been around forever. And they've come under different headings. CSR was certainly one, as you point out, over say 20, 30 years ago that was used a lot. I'd say ESG became most kind of commonly heard in the last 10 years. Yeah, I was thinking that sort of an outgrowth of uh, the GFC, the great financial crisis, when there was uh, this economic upheaval, foreclosures, savings wiped out, and, and effectively 
no accountability, no material accountability. And, and ESG seemed to me as to emerge as an influential way of addressing some of these perceived inequities. That's a great point. And it speaks to the broader um, history of economic history around, you know, how are new policies, whether from the government or from kind of um, stakeholders um, adopted, and they tend to come from crises. So if you go back to the Great Depression, it was out of that period that so much regulation was spawned that the SEC came about that gap accounting and IFRS became the kind of common standards, which changed 100 years of capital markets. And then I think coming out of the great financial crisis, there was an increase of what was already building, starting, I think, with Enron and MCI and some of the challenges around 2001, around confidence in what management teams were doing that just amplified after the financial crisis and, and pushed the ESG factors more to the forefront. It's interesting. I was reading in preparation for this that Morningstar reported that global ESG fund assets reached about $2.5 trillion at the end of mm -hmm. 2022. And, and ESG investing is now the fastest growing segment of the asset management in, uh, industry. What do, you, what do you think is driving that growth today? It's a really interesting question. I think it's a bit of a fallacy to demarcate ESG investing as a specific kind of investing. I think what ESG in, investing is, is really just the recognition that there are factors beyond pure financial returns, which matter to whether a company is a good long-term investment or not. And this speaks to, I, I think, where we maybe went a little off course with the Milton Friedman kind of paradigm, which was summarized as the only thing that matters is shareholder returns, right? And that got interpreted over the generations to mean, okay, re financial returns at all cost. Whatever else you have to do doesn't is, is fine. It's justified and it's justified the means. The problem is over a long period of time, companies can't operate that way because they'll cut corners for short-term returns that eventually will catch up to them. So I think what we're seeing with the kind of rise of ESG investing is, is just a catch-up of recognition that those factors matter to a company's long-term success and therefore to an investor's long-term interest. You know, obviously Milton Friedman is, you know, the social responsibility of, of a company is to grow profits. But he, he also said that that was within the basic rules of their society and, and those embedded, embodied in law and, and embodied in ethical considerations. And I think some point to that and say, even Milton Friedman would support as part of the profit motive, yep. the ESG considerations. Yeah, you, you make a great point. We tend to focus on just particular elements of you know big, big sayings or big people. I, I lived in Europe for 10 years and I ran an investment firm over there and I would, I would often find myself uh, amazed at the, the kind of backbone of the economy. A lot of these Europe, continental European countries like Germany were private mid-sized companies that had been around for like 50 or 100 years. They even had a name for them, you know, the Mittelstand. Mm. And, and, and the reason they were around so long is because the way they ran their business was, if we want to be around in 50 years, how are we going to treat all of our stakeholders that matter? And they viewed yeah. how they treated their suppliers as just important as the profits they made. Because they said, hey, we can't operate if our suppliers don't want to work with us. Right. And somewhere we lost that talk track, I think, a bit in the U.S. It seems common sense almost, doesn't it? Exactly, which, which is why I think this political debate over ESG is, is, is really misplaced. The metrics that ESG is trying to highlight are common sense metrics that pretty much everyone was taught to care about 30 years ago, 50 years ago, well before there was this acronym. Yeah. And so, you know, speaking of, of critics, there, you know, ESG is, is not without its critics. Sure. 
And in fact, it seems to be having some impact, at least in the United States, in terms of uh, in the past 12 months, there's been a, a net outflow of ESG funds to the tune of about $12.4 billion. But in Europe, there's been a significantly greater inflow to ESG funds. What do, what do you think accounts for that? I guess the first point I, I would make is that if I go to a doctor and I say I'm not feeling well, and the doctor says, all right, I'm going to ask you a whole bunch of questions to try to understand you know, what's causing you not to feel well, but I can't ask you some questions because um, I'm told they're not ones I'm allowed to ask. Mm. I would say, what are you talking about? You can ask me any question you want. You and I will decide what we want to do with the information. So to me, the, the idea that political pressure in the United States in particular is saying, hey, investors, you can't ask certain questions. To me, it's just misplaced. It doesn't make sense. Asking questions is not the problem. Um, it's good to gather information. The In Europe, I think what you're seeing is um, kind of point number two is the regulatory regime uh, is driving the um, uh, the story. So SFDR and soon to be CSRD now require private companies of certain size uh, to start reporting on important non-financial metrics. Mm -hmm. And that's causing a lot of firms to say, we can't ignore um, these kinds of ESG metrics. We've got to get our arms around them. The US has started a little bit down this path, but to your point, it's become very political. And so uh, right now there's kind of a pause, I guess is one way to put it. Right. And to, so one of your points, you know, one of the biggest challenges around defining ESG or some of the challenges around ESG are compounded by the fact that there isn't universal, objective, rigorous framework for measuring ESG. Is that what led you to sort of found Novada? It certainly has um, elements of it. Yeah. So I first started working on these issues back in 07. I was at the Gates Foundation. I worked as the CFO and I oversaw, uh, as part of my job, uh, an investment fund where we tried to uh, make investments in for-profit enterprises that were also consistent with the mission of the foundation. It was kind of a double bottom line approach. And we, we struggled to try to identify what uh, would determine factors that matter outside of pure financial returns. And over the subsequent kind of decades, it's been a lot, long time now, uh, in various roles, I, I continue to struggle because there was no, as you point out, clearly defined set of kind of, this is good, this is bad. And that's the crux of the issue. There never will be. It's a relative um, kind of equation. So how is one company doing versus its peers? And the challenge is most of the time, investors don't have that information. Right. And that's especially true in the private markets, which is where the engine of capital really uh, operates. You know, nine out of 10 jobs or so are in private companies. Private mm -hmm. companies exist like in Plato's cave in isolation. They have very limited information about how they're doing. And so if you think of a company as having an effect on the community it operates in, in terms of, say, its environmental footprint or how it treats its employees or its stakeholders. It's really imperative to start getting accurate information for private companies and then enabling them to benchmark against each other. And that's what we uh, we set up Novada to do. Before we get to exactly what Novada does, yeah. I understand it's some consortium. Can you describe that and how it came together? Yeah, Novada was designed to be kind of a neutral intermediary, uh, almost like a stock exchange that solves problems that are common problems that lots of participants in the private markets ecosystem face. And in order to be truly neutral, we set it up as a consortium of um, players, all of whom were wrestling with these same issues where no one is a majority owner. They all own a piece of it. And it's both a public private set of backers. So it's the Ford Foundation, 
larger social justice foundation, which leads on this on the foundation side along with the Omidyar network. And then it's companies like Hamilton Lane, largest intermediary in the private markets, S&P Global, Microsoft. We have about a half a dozen clients of Nevada that are private equity firms that invested from their partners' capital. We have banks that have invested in, in Nevada. Uh, so it's a public-private consortium set up where they've invested very long-term capital. Got it. And what exactly do you do? Well, we do three things. One, we make software that is designed for private equity firms and private credit firms, venture firms, growth equity firms, to enable them to easily have their portfolio companies, groups they invest in, figure out which ESG metrics matter and how to calculate that data. That's number one. Number two, that data is then easily stored in a secure place where it can be contextualized. So we provide benchmarks, which allow users of the data to understand where they might have problems that they need to get better at, where they're doing really well. And third, we uh, add a whole set of analytics on top of that that allow uh, users to design action plans to solve kind of problems, reach targets, report to stakeholders, that kind of stuff. So can you give me an example of how, you know, a sure. private credit fund or private equity fund might use, you know, what data they might seek and what, how they might use it? Yeah. So let, let's say you have a mid-sized private equity firm. They own, you know, 50 companies, let's say, or 30 companies. They, they would identify first, what are the metrics that we as the GP care about? And sometimes that's suggested to them by, say, regulators. So under SFDR in Europe, there's a whole set of material metrics that they have to track. Or in the United States, there's an industry group that tracks certain metrics. Our software will build basically a query based off those metrics. And for each of the metrics that the GP cares about, there'll be a kind of paint by numbers process by which a user, each of their portfolio companies, almost gets their hand held to walk through and calculate each of the metrics with guidance, with integrated calculators, scope one through three emissions calculators, for example. Mm -hmm. And then um, it will produce a nice report and the GP can then look at how their individual companies compare to each other, look at a particular metric that can say, all right, let me see my scope to emissions for all the companies I own and which companies are doing the best and which are the worst. And then once I figure out who's good and who's bad in my portfolio on this metric, let me see how they compare to all their peer companies. We can do that. And then they can say, let me see how they compare to their peer public companies. And then they say, all right, I want to design an action plan to reduce my scope to emissions for these three companies. What will the action plan look like? What are the targets? When should they be achieved? How do we do it? Those are the kinds of things they use this for. So what about things I think you mentioned like equality and in, in compensation or other you know, factors yeah. like that? How, would you, how do you gather that information? How does that information get developed? Yeah. So each company uh, has that information. They report it. We anonymize it all. It gets built into benchmarks. So then a user can see, all right, for my kind of um, diversity of say my management team, how do I compare to 30 companies in my industry that are also private about the same size? And they can see the anonymized data, which is the first step in deciding, you know, do I, do I think I'm well positioned? Do I want to make a change? Do I have to get better? That kind of stuff. And is this also used in the diligence process in addition to the monitoring? Thanks for bringing that up. It, it absolutely is. So um, investors, private equity firms, when they're considering making an investment, will use the software to uh, look at the particular company they're considering investing in, try to identify the key risk factors. They might be called ESG factors, but they're risk factors. And then understand how does this target company compare to its peers? 
because there's going to be a financial impact. So this is the key kind of piece. There, these ESG metrics have material financial implications, but in order to try to understand what they are, you have to be able to benchmark what the data you're looking at means. Because right. let me give you a specific example. Let's say a private equity firm is thinking about buying a company you know, that makes widgets. And when they do their ESG analysis, it turns out that the factory uses all of its energy from, say, coal, has no renewable energy. They know that over time, the pressure to have some of their energy sources be from renewable energies is going to grow. That's a very clear secular tailwind. If that's the case, they're going to have to start modeling into their financial assumptions what the cost implications are. Put another way, let's say there's a, you know, a big kind of worker safety issue. They're going to have to improve on that or a data breach issue. They have to improve on that. Those are real financial costs. So they have to essentially adjust their assumptions on their earnings. And Got it. Th those are quite material. And my understanding is, is you have just developed some data that you're going to be releasing to your clients. Is that right? Yeah. So we have about 4,000 companies using this um, platform and um, contracted to use the platform. And we build benchmarks off of the data that they contribute and anonymize mm -hmm. it. And we're releasing um, about 250 odd benchmarks uh, next week. So about 40 universal metrics and then 200 plus um, kind of sector specific metrics, which will be the broadest uh, set of ESG metrics in the private market. So we're really excited about that because it it becomes uh, the beginning of shedding light on this Plato's cave problem. How does what you produce your metrics compare to some competitors? You know, you know, the regulatory agencies also are presumably producing data on this as well. And so, give give me a sense of compare sure. and contrast. Yeah. So we set up Novata because there was a missing kind of key, which is actual data contributed by the data owners and then anonymized to create benchmarks. The data that exists today is largely data that's been hypothesized uh, or scraped. And the way it works often is big companies, uh, ratings agencies, um, big data companies will take public company data, public company information, and they'll then try to normalize it for private companies. They'll say, all right, if you're in the same industry and you have a smaller number of employees and you're based in these region, then your emissions should look like this, or we think your diversity numbers look like this. That tends not to be very accurate, but it's all that has existed to date. Because mm -hmm. if you're a private company, you don't report this anywhere. So mm -hmm. until efforts like Novata reach critical mass, there has, has been no way to actually create accurate benchmarks around material non-financial data, which is why this is such an important kind of inflection point for the issue. Interesting. So is it fair to say that the data existed previously well-defined or better defined for public companies, but for the private the company's less so and and you not even bridge, not even no, okay no even for the public companies it's really poor so let me give an example if you take yeah. the top four groups that do say esg rankings for a, a fortune 100 company and you look at the correlations on a particular ratings report the correlations tend to be around 0.5 so that's like flipping a coin. Mm -hmm. If you take take bond ratings for that same company, the correlations are like 0.92 and up, 0.95, et cetera. So it's very um, poor information. And that's because often it's a combination of guessed, hypothesized, scrubbed, some combination of. And then the rankings themselves are quite subjective because it depends on what the, the group doing the rankings decides is the most important factors. 
So we don't do rankings. That's a critical point. Novata is a set of tools to enable benchmarking off actual data. It's very different than a third party saying, here's what's important. So you're releasing this data. What would you say are some of the key takeaways? Yeah, we've had really a, a great time trying to kind of scrub the data and take out a lot of insights. I mean, a few key takeaways are private equity is a engine of net job creation, which is a surprise to, I think, a lot of folks who read the kind of media and they might think, well, private equity is about buying a business and firing lots of people and cutting costs. And, you know, it's a big destruction of human capital. It's actually the opposite. We see huge net job creation numbers. There's a whole bunch of other insights, which we're going to release, but I, I probably should wait till we put the report right. out. Give us a few, but I will tell you on that last point that you just said, I, I actually yeah. Yeah, I've been, it's been my view that private equity industry writ large has done a poor job of, I don't like the word marketing itself, but it hasn't done a good job of explaining what it does well. And I think your you know, some of the metrics that you're talking about really uh, bring to light that uh, it's, you know, in terms of being more job creators, for instance, right. is, is a contrary to the narrative uh, that is generally out there for private equity funds. The thing you have to um, maybe remember, Peter, and perhaps you know it already, and in our case, we learned it um, this time, is that most of the firms we work with this is the first year in which they're collecting a lot of this information. Mm. So these thousands of companies that are reporting through Novata, often this is their first reporting season of trying to get their arms around this, uh, this set of uh, metrics. What do you see as the, or how do you think ESG will impact the future of business over the next one to three years? Well, one to three years is it's a very near-term time horizon. Maybe can I take a little bit of a broader time horizon? Of course. <laughs> Let's say like five plus years. I guess I think this is a very analogous period to where we were in the early 30s with the introduction of gap accounting. So before gap, companies reported on whatever they wanted. They might report on their revenues, their profits, number of employees they have, literally anything they wanted. And with gap accounting, there was kind of a standardization which enabled for really the supercharging of the capital markets because you had trust and confidence. There were entire industries spawned out of it, right? The accounting industry became what it is, um, so many other services. To me, what we're seeing right now, especially in Europe, is um, a period of time just like that, where all of a sudden what a company's expected to report on changes fundamentally, and there's no going back. And this time, it's not just public companies, it's private companies too. And that makes a lot of sense from the perspective of good public policy, because you know, tragedy of the commons issues, they're not affected just by public companies, right? It's anyone who's an enterprise. So climate issues... Every company has a role to play in solving climate problems, social justice issues, stability of society, all that stuff. So I, I think we're at an inflection point where business changes in terms of what it reports on and therefore ultimately how it will address its own kind of areas of challenge because you don't, you know, you can't improve on something you don't measure as so many people have said, Peter Drucker and others. So for someone, capital allocator or CEO who, if they want to start getting smart on ESG, <laughs> Would you suggest a, a a book or a way to get started? Shameless plug, uh, go to novata.com. We have an incredible <laughs> resource library of free resources and eBooks on all these issues. And um, yeah, we can get you up to speed real fast and free. Great. Fantastic. And and what non-ESG book or podcast would you recommend to a friend? I think it would have to be yours. Ah, there you go. <laughs> I, I do appreciate that. Uh, but I, there are others, 
do you have any? Well, other? Sir, I'm going to reach way down there. I mean, uh, I, I like the daily um, from the New York Times. Yeah. Um, Smirconish, I think, is pretty good. There's, good. there's no shortage yeah. of them. Excellent. Well, listen, I appreciate your time. I appreciate you uh, spending the time with us and explaining this, uh, Nevada to us. I think that your mission is really important. It will have a very material change on the future of, of the businesses, certainly those that subscribe to your platform. So congratulations, you're doing good work. Thank you so much. And thanks for having me here. All right, take care.